Hi, this is Malia Cromer, director of the Goucher College Poll, and you're listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, a source of news and notes on Maryland politics and policy viewed favorably by an overwhelming majority of Marylanders. Hello and welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, the zebras are still on the loose. I assume that you don't have any in your basement. I assume that's still the case. I hope you're doing well. How is everything going on your end? Everything's fine here, Kevin, and uh, I will contribute nothing at all to the record on the official whereabouts of the zebras or any information I may or may not have about them. I think that's probably the right thing to do. We don't want anyone showing up, especially our special guest today, Michael, and and he might be a guy that would show up. And today we're going to talk all about emergency management and some new developments here in Maryland that I think are really good for the state. And just to sort of set this up, we know that emergency management is a year-round process. This is a big deal for county governments. It's a constant loop of preparation, training, testing, and revision that strengthens the community preparedness and resilience. And we also know that a strong partnership among federal, state, and local governments is vital to emergency preparedness and response. And with that, we're very happy to have with us today the new acting secretary of the brand new Maryland Department of Emergency Management, Russell Strickland. And I say new acting secretary because Russ has been at the helm of MEMA, the Maryland Emergency Management Agency, since 2015. And MEMA is now MDEM which is a forward-facing cabinet-level position. Director Strickland, welcome. Thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity and thank you for the support through all of this. And uh, it, it's an exciting time. It's a, an opportunity to really raise emergency management and preparedness and building resilience to the next level. So I, I'm looking forward to it. Well, we're really happy to have you join us and, and also, uh, having having someone in your station uh, in a coordinating role, that's always been the function of the agency, but to have it elevated to the cabinet level, I think underscores the importance of preparedness and coordination for these kind of circumstances. So our, our listeners for this podcast are, are folks who are interested in Maryland policy and politics and so forth. And we don't mind getting a little bit in the weeds about good government and best practices and that kind of stuff. Uh, We love that you come from local government and have that perspective and have a lot of experience working with our locals, but lay the table a little bit for our listeners on what what the Department of Emergency Management has as its mission and where you see stepping in to, to aid and assist and coordinate with all of our County folks. Well, that's, that's a really good question. And I, I think, uh, you know, from a very global perspective, you know, the emergency management discipline is, is truly focused on building that entire culture of preparedness, you know, behavioral change across the board. And I realize that's, that's a really, really big area. But I think more than anything, we focus on reality. And that is, boom, you know, what's going to happen? What's going to happen next? What's going to come through the door? And through the years, what comes through the door has just changed and evolved so much uh, that we're involved with things that, you know, in the past, one, we may have never heard of, and two, we probably would not have been involved with it. So using our model, 
you know, we try to work with our local jurisdictions who are really our primary customer before the boom in preparedness efforts, really looking at prevention, protection, and mitigation, and then working with them during the disaster, that's the boom time, and response and response into recovery and saying that very quickly together, focused on the whole concept of similar to CPR, the sooner you begin uh, recovery efforts, the, the better uh, results you'll have. So we start to do the recovery immediately with a response. So we're with the local jurisdiction during the disaster, the boom, and then we're with them after the disaster into the recovery effort. And, and, then, and it's that mentality you know, that we're really here to work with the local jurisdictions, those, those that you all represent. And we do that, you know, really with coordinating our state agencies so that they can assist and provide, you know, the necessary resources and assets the locals might need. That partnership is essential. And, you know, nobody really thinks about, you know, the average resident doesn't really think about what's going on behind the scenes until, as you say, the boom, right? And we had a tornado here in Annapolis recently. Everybody showed up. They were on the ground right away. You had state, local, you had federal resources, I believe, as well. And that all happened and came together very, very quickly, Russ. And I think that's what you're talking about is you're always ready to go. And and this elevation to the cabinet, I think, just, just really puts you... In the, in the right spectrum, right? For people to say, wow, this is important stuff and we should be paying attention. And absolutely, emergency management should have a seat at the table when we're talking about cabinet level positions. And so it's a really big deal. I, I, I remember a few years ago, you telling me that this is a growing trend in emergency management, that more and more states are elevating their emergency management agencies to principal departments and that we should do the same. So we have that now, but I want you to talk a little bit more about the history of emergency management in Maryland and why MDEM is going to strengthen and enhance that collaboration, communication, and coordination that you're talking about between state and county governments, and especially in these times of crisis. Oh, those are, those are, uh, those are good points. And uh, yeah, just from a statistical perspective, you know, we have now joined the ranks. There's a total of three, will be four in 2022 states that clearly have a Department of Emergency Management. There's a total of uh, really 12 states that report directly to their governor. So we are kind of uh, cutting edge with that and stepping forward with it. So if you look back through the history of emergency management, it really goes back to the civil defense days. And the civil defense days you know, grew out of literally World War II and into the Cold War era where we were focused on the nuclear attack and you know everyone was uh, concerned about that. We had fallout shelters everywhere. And it was through an infusion of federal money and a lot of federal planning that you know, every local jurisdiction ended up employing a civil defense director and generally one other person. And, and what they did is they, they focused on this Cold War era again of what would we do if we are, are under a nuclear attack and out of that for maryland grew this whole push for preparedness and and one of the the, the most interesting stories to me is out of the history of all that is you know initially those civil defense directors because of the federal money were able to put push to talk radios in law enforcement vehicles, fire rescue vehicles, and ambulances at the time. And, and it's really the growth of 
Today, we have a statewide 700 megahertz radio system. So it originated the whole concept back in the civil defense era, and, and we've grown. But we were only focused on that. And as we, as we kind of evolved out of the Cold War era and into really what I would call the late 60s into the 70s, 80s, you know, we became much more uh, natural hazard focused. And that is, you know, snowstorms, hurricanes, you know, we're one of the uh, hurricane prone states uh, in this country. You know, what is it we can do to better prepare ourselves, better mitigate against, better respond, and of course, better recover from any of those natural events. And as we evolved through all of that and uh, started to get into other areas, I think it was some of it really accidentally uh, in that a crisis and crisis management is, is a basic concept that can be applied, whether it's a nuclear attack, whether it is you know, a snowstorm, or whether it's the need for an opiate operations command center, whatever it might be, and, and particularly today moving into cyber. So the, the growth has just been um, monumental in the last 40, 50, 60 years with the emergency management discipline. It certainly does underscore. I think. I think a lot of our listeners. I, I remember having you know civil defense drills in the schools and, and things like that. And so you know there there being federal leadership on preparedness for the worst imaginable emergency. It was kind of the maypole that this all built around. But like you said, this has really expanded that that concept of leadership and coordination at the high level and some implementation at the state level and then at the local level um, ends up being the network of preparedness and response that we all depend on and we all now see as an essential part of the public safety mission that we owe to our, our residents and, and citizens and so forth. So, but, but a huge evolution over, over, uh, over the decades of what everybody expects from, from the public sector on this front. And sometimes we have a relationship with the federal emergency management agency with FEMA as a reimbursement entity, right? They're, they're the big player when there's an event that's beyond the scope of a few counties on the shoreline or the one jurisdiction that got hit by the tornado or whatever. We think of them having a big role at that level, but the last few years have illustrated Sometimes an emergency circumstance is not just a day. It's not just a touchdown or a storm, but it can be a pandemic and, and months and months of ongoing response and coordination. So this just has changed a ton over time. I think you, know, you, you and the agency now department have had, to, had to, have had to forge those dreams and try and stay ahead of that. Yeah, you're exactly right. And at the national level to have watched how this has grown too from the civil defense era into the beginnings of uh, what was FEMA in the 70s and 80s. And now today, you know, we have a national preparedness doctrine and we have a national preparedness goal and, and we have our mission areas that are very clear. And if anything, that has created a standard, a baseline across all of the emergency management discipline for us to work within. And um, 
I think people have adopted that uh, very, very well. We have evolved very, very well. And then when it comes to the development of the discipline, you know, the, the educational system has, has in, been inclusive with it where you can take programs in high school that are focused on emergency preparedness, you know, all the way through to a doctoral program today. And uh, it, it's, just, it's just expanded the whole discipline so much, uh, so quickly. Uh, with incredible opportunities for folks to to get involved. And Secretary, you know, Michael mentioned the the pandemic, and I think it's really important that that we touch on that because we're used to mutual aid, and that's that's one of the things that I admire most about you and your local counterparts. There are no borders in an emergency. Everybody shows up, no matter what. And that works most of the time, right? Because we're able to reallocate resources where they're needed the most. But, you know, with COVID, everyone needed all the resources at the same time. And the nation really was not prepared for that. So how does this pandemic change the way that you think about preparedness and resilience? And then from a national perspective, I'm sure you're in touch with your counterparts across the country. This has to be a conversation that's ongoing about what do we do the next time something like this happens? And hopefully it doesn't happen, but it's got to be front and center right now. It, it is. It you know the the pandemic has probably well ha- has really since the the last pandemic been one of the worst crises the nation has ever uh, experienced, and it broke all the rules, all of the planning and training and exercising we had done because we planned for bits and pieces of it but never had taken a holistic approach. And that's what is really, really challenging. I mean, when you end up with a situation where we would normally, without any problem at all, be able to get assistance from other states and then get assistance from the federal government, you know, this time we had uh, states of emergency declared in every state and territory, as well as a national, and there was no cavalry available to come in really outside of some of the military really resources and assets. So we, we, were, we, were, we were left uh, on our own in every state and, and we communicated with every state, you know, to see how we were handling it and what it was we could do uh, to share resources and assets and things like that. And then you add into that, you know, some of the major items we needed, personal protective equipment, and we had a supply chain break because, you know, of where in the world most of that was coming from. So it was, I I hate to use the word lack of planning, but it was, we didn't put all of our thoughts and planning into a process where really we're we're an island to ourselves. Uh, And and it's going to change our focus in the future. I mean, we're, we're definitely looking at you know, how can we manage stockpiles so that when we do need them, and hopefully it's at least another 100 years, that when we go to that warehouse, you know, everything isn't 100 years old, but we've set up a system so that that stock was rotated and used on a, on a, on a routine basis um, so that when we need it, it is in fact there and, and it's in good shape. So this, is, this is, has, has disrupted 
if anything, our planning processes in a good way, because now we have other items we need to consider with this. And, and this is not unusual. You know, we've, we've had in consideration with natural disasters, climate change with our planning processes and our mitigation planning, you know, the last 10 years without any problem or any timeline applies without any problem. So we, we've got to be forward thinking. We've got to be imaginative and figure, try and, and second guess what that next piece is that uh, we need to be thinking about. That's exciting, scary, but it's exciting. Mr. Secretary, as, as, you, as you speak about sort of hopefully we're on the way out of this pandemic setting and hopefully things will continue to turn for the better, we all certainly hope that, but it's become a bit of a political cliche. You don't want to let a crisis go to waste. And it's, you know, I don't want to be, I don't want to speak in a punchy way about a, a really dire circumstance, but I think there's an element of truth that's why things become cliches because there's a there's an element of truth to them. So, th- the notion of we should learn from what we weren't fully prepared for this go round and have the structure in place so we can be better prepared in the event something like this, either like this or analogous, you know, happens again. That we've got the supply chain for equipment that we need, or we have the people ready to respond, and, and that sort of thing. So having a stable leadership place like like you and the department seems to be the forward thinking way for states to assemble this that you don't you don't want to reinvent the wheel every time you need to get on the bike. No, I I I couldn't agree more with you. I mean you're 100% correct and I and I think that is is part of what's taking emergency management into what I would call its next evolution. And that's really the whole concept of continually focusing on building resilience. And, you know, whether it's resilience for natural disasters or it's resilience for a man-made disaster, we need to be thinking in those terms of what is our acceptable levels of risk and, you know, what to, to what degree we have the resilience that will manage that acceptable level of risk. All of that is forward in the minds of our listeners and people who are engaged at Maryland you know, policy process and so forth. I, I want to shift gears a little bit because there's an element that's now under your department that is very near and dear to county governments in particular and something we've talked about on this podcast multiple times in the past. It's 911 as a as a as the access point for now, you know, millions of contacts with the public safety universe. You could probably make an argument it's the most important advance in public safety in my lifetime. I think there's a pretty strong argument that's the case. Uh, I think the county community is really pleased that the, the, the 911 board, the former emergency number systems board, being located in your agency it, with the Department of Emergency Management is, a, is a, the right fit and for them to be part of the leadership and and resilience that you're talking about, um, I think 
I think there's optimism in the county community. Do you have anything to add on on 911 in particular? I know it's it's uh, adjacent to some of the core missions of MEMA, but uh, but I think it's 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 in the same universe, right? Absolutely, and uh, it's it's absolutely near and dear to my heart personally. You know, I started out in life as a 17-year-old part-time police department dispatcher. And that probably shows my age because nobody today would ever let a 17-year-old sit there. (laughs) The bottom line is that's where I started, and it was pre-911. And I I grew up in Cecil County. It was the town of Elkton. I moved to uh, uh, civil defense and, and the fire communications and law enforcement communications there and actually worked one of the first 911 PBX boards uh, when it first came out. So I, I understand and absolutely could not agree with, with what you're saying is that the first first responders, the people who are in need talk to first are the 911 dispatchers. And um, to, to roll them into emergency management and into the world of preparedness and building resilience is absolutely paramount. There's no excuse for us not to have a 100% functioning, 100% of the time goal of all of our 911 centers. And that's on a, what I would call a, a bright sunny day, you know, when they're handling all of the quote unquote routine emergencies they handle. Because when we have that dark sky day or some type of a local uh, elevated crisis, they 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 are the the first the first place. I mean, they have got to be 100 percent, 100 percent of the time. So to bring them in with us and us to be able to have the opportunity to build the kind of resilience they need, particularly through planning, training, and exercise, um, I I think it's just very, very logical in my world, but obviously I'm, I'm, I'm biased, you know, that's because that's the world I came from and started in. So I, I, I just think it makes the most sense. Well, I mean, I agree with you and and you're biased, I'm biased, but I I think that your history proves that if you think it's the right thing to do, I'd put my money on that. And it, it is near and dear to my heart too. And, and Mr. Secretary, you're, you're housing this 911 board at a very, very important time as we transition to next gen 911. And, and a lot of things that you're talking about in terms of resilience and being up 100% of the time is so, so important, but also the ability to text to 911, which we can now do in Maryland, the ability to send media so that first responders know what they may be walking into, right? If, if there is that local disaster, like you're saying, you can transfer those calls automatically to another jurisdiction to help you deal with what you're dealing with because you're overwhelmed. And I think most importantly, if you're on a cell phone, we're going to know where you are now. It's not going to be the nearest tower that your cell phone pings off of. We'll have a direct location for somebody who is in need of help. And maybe they can't tell you where they are. That's so, so important. We know people have died because of that. And we're going to make sure that doesn't happen anymore. So you're taking over this this function. It's being housed under MDEM at a very, very important time. And I know that the 911 community is very excited to be with MDEM hand in hand, working toward this transition, making sure that it's equitable, that all boats rise across the state. I can't think of anywhere better to make sure that that goes off without a hitch. 
No, I, I agree 100% with you. I mean, uh, I, again, I, I really do believe it's, uh, it's very logical. Um, they will be uh, basically an autonomous group within our department, you know, particularly because of their funding stream and the management of their funds. Um, but we will pull them into the fold of planning, training, and exercise. And, you know, what the work of the Next Gen 911 Commission has done, uh, particularly under Senator Kagan's leadership, uh, has just been absolutely phenomenal and has, has moved Maryland, you know, those next steps in, in all of this next gen arena. And, you know, the, the most exciting part about all of this to me is what we don't know for the future. You know, we have absolutely, to some degree, no idea of what the next medium is, the next way we can communicate and to keep our 911 centers and our statewide system on the cutting edge of every capability there might be is important and that's and that's how we build that type of resilience so it, it, it's exciting uh, i'm really looking forward to uh, working more with them and very very closely with them yeah no doubt that it's it's constantly evolving and another issue that is constantly evolving and keeps people like you up at night i'm sure is cybersecurity. and this is another issue that we've talked about a lot on this podcast and it keeps me up at night quite frankly i mean this is a whole new world in terms of these new and evolving cyber threats. Every single day, there's something new, it seems. And it's National Cybersecurity Awareness Month. I know that MDEM is all over that and promoting that and making sure that people understand the importance of, of resilience and redundancy, but making sure that we're keeping these cyber attackers out, right? We're all partners here. We have shared constituents. We have sensitive data. We do a lot of things that we need to have connectivity to do. And especially amidst the pandemic, when you have everybody shifting to a remote work environment, it becomes more difficult to keep those devices secure and make sure that people are not clicking on malicious links or phishing attacks, stuff like that. So it's Cybersecurity Awareness Month, and I think it's a great time to sort of promote what you're doing and what we can do collectively to make sure that, that we stay on the right side of this and that we're not victims of these attacks that we've seen, you know, big headline stories shut folks down. What are your thoughts about that? How do you sleep at night? I uh, I generally sleep for six hours without any problem, believe it or not. But but it does keep me up at night, or it does I do awake to thinking about it. Is that you know for many years in the emergency management community and and, and still today, if someone says what's your number one hazard in the state of Maryland, and it comes back to you know the data shows flooding, and yes that that is correct, but right there alongside of it, and because we don't necessarily have the best way to assess it and align it, you know, somehow with the data to flooding is cyber, because we're having more of those types of quote unquote crisis than we are the natural hazard crisis, and they are creating damage, again, not like flooding or, or uh, snow might, but they do create disruption. And so, that, so it's, it's, a, it's a crisis and it's no different to us than any other crisis we have. And because of that, we have uh, created here a, a cyber preparedness unit. And that's not necessarily any different for us. In the past, we've had a natural hazards and still do natural hazards uh, preparedness group. Uh, we've had a, a nuclear power plant uh, 
preparedness uh, unit. Now we're going to have a cyber. We have a cyber preparedness unit, and we're putting uh, several people in that. And it's to look at with the local jurisdictions how can they better one assess what their vulnerabilities and risk are. How can they plan accordingly based upon what those vulnerabilities and risk are, and then write a plan, develop a plan, and then train and exercise that plan. And that's the push right now is, and we just had you know a, a session with through MAKO with all of our local emergency managers, and and each jurisdiction is different, but they may have an individual responsible for security, IT security, who's in county government, public schools, possibly a public safety network. So there's at least, you know, one to three people in every jurisdiction who are specific to the security of the IT in their area, but marry them up with their emergency manager, one, so they know who each other is, and two, so we can start this assessment planning process so that every jurisdiction has a disruption plan, they've trained it, they've exercised it, and you know, we've, we've kind of uh, pulled them into the world of emergency management and that whole concept of the culture of preparedness, building that uh, resilience that we need. So we're just starting with that. Uh, I'm really looking forward to that. I think it's, it's a big major step forward with us, truly identifying what the future risk and vulnerabilities are that we have on a statewide basis and uh, trying to address it immediately. Yeah, I mean, you always have to be thinking 10 steps ahead. And I'll say too, I think you're right. I, I, talking to each other is so important, right? Getting the right people to the table because we're all, we all have the same mission. And traditionally, these folks have operated in silos and that is the same deal with like 911. And I, I would say emergency management in general, I mean, you're dealing with sensitive information, but these days it's so important that, that we talk to each other, that we develop best practices and share those best practices, share news about threats, stuff coming down the line. I think that dialogue is so, so important. And that's something that you're going to be able to cultivate and, and really be the clearinghouse for all this information and making sure that we're prepared. So I, I'm really excited about that. And shifting gears one more time, I think just nuts and bolts stuff, I, people are interested in, okay, so you go from MEMA to MDEM. Do you just open up your drawer and throw out all your business cards that have MEMA written? I mean, is this like millions and millions of dollars? We got to get Russ all these new business cards and new signage. I mean, how, how does this work? I know that <laughs> it's not like that, but a lot of people think it is like, wow, what a waste. But so tell people like what this transition is really like. That's, uh, that's an excellent point, excellent question. You know, for the general public, what we were on September 30th is the same as what we are today. We are a group of people, mission-driven, who care, who are going to work with our local jurisdictions before, during, and after disaster, period. What it means to transition from a department where we're an agency to our own department in today's electronic world is you know, our letterhead changes, our business cards will change, but we don't, we don't print our letterhead anymore. It's, it's on a template on the computer. So that's been changed and you know, we'll do our letters and formal communications on that, that piece of paper, but it, it, it didn't cost us anything to do that. 
It'll cost us to do business cards, but we'll replace business cards as we run out of the old ones too. The you know, telephone numbers aren't changing or anything like that. Uh, now, administratively, coming out of the military department into our own department, there were several positions that we needed uh, to basically pick up the gap of where the military department was providing us with services. We're in the process of that now. Uh, that's really minimal. And it will give us direct access to other state departments, particularly Department of Budget and Management, Department of General Services. Uh, we already had a direct relationship with the Department of uh, Information Technology. So I think it will make all of that uh, much more uh, efficient uh, and more effective in that we can, you know, we can go directly to uh, the other departments with, without any, uh, you know, any, any concern at all. So, you know, expense-wise and growing of government, there'll be none of that. It uh, will, we'll, if we are able to secure any pins, as they would call it in our, our business, we're getting them from other departments, but the state of Maryland's not um, creating additional positions and all for this. We'll be doing a lot of rearranging in-house to address, uh, you know, what our needs and all are. So along somewhat similar lines and maybe maybe a little bit in jest, we, we know that, that agencies in government tend to dissolve into acronyms and abbreviations and so <laughs> forth. And it looks like we've already informally sort of broken the champagne bottle and said it's MDEM. Are, are you are you comfortable with that? Because this may be your opportunity to tell the world that you want it to be modem or I don't I don't know I don't know what else you would say for MDEM, but there already is an MDE. That that spot's already kind of been claimed. This is the kind of stuff you Mr. Secretary, you need to think about. I know, I know. <laughs> and believe me, I've had those questions. So here's my answer. <laughs> you could continue to call us MEMA. I will still answer. You could call us MDEM, I will answer. You could call us MDEMA with the A out of management, stuck on to the end of it, I will answer. If you call emergency management, I will answer. If you call hey you, I will answer. So um, MDEM is our new legal name. But we will. All right, we can run with that. Whatever, yes. Well, it's, I mean, it's, it's the nature of the kind of service that you and the department need to function, that you respond however the call comes in. So your answer is right on point, even, even if the, you know, the question was kind of in jest. But that's okay. We'll, we'll run with MDM. That's fine. <laughs> and, and one more thing. Probably, I, I don't know how we haven't gotten to this yet. We mentioned it briefly up front. But where are you on this zebra mitigation work group? I mean, I, I, I know you're talking with other states. We got zebras running around Prince George's County. Are we talking about mutual aid? Uh, you know, yeah. maybe call Michael Sanderson up. I think he's like a, an expert now. But what what are we doing with the zebras? Where is MDEM on the zebra issue yes. in Prince George's County? So we're um, we're heavily involved with that. Actually, um, you know, we have the Emergency Management Assistance Compact, which allows us to uh, request assistance from other states. Now the challenge is we haven't declared a state of emergency, but the other states so far have been pretty cooperative with that. And basically we're asking for, uh, you know, uh, animal control, humane society kind of assistance. Uh, we've got prescripted uh, messages ready to go to those other states as soon as Prince George's County requested. So we're ready to roll. <laughs> well, we appreciate you taking that in good spirit. <laughs> uh, Secretary Strickland, in all seriousness, thank you so much. The work that you do 
is incredibly important. And the relationship between the state and the counties is so, so, so incredibly important. And most people don't realize how important it is until, as you say, that boom happens. But everybody should understand that this is 24-7, constantly watching and preparing for these new and evolving threats. And, and we really appreciate what you do and for taking the time to join us today. Well, I appreciate very much the opportunity. And I, uh, I, I must extend my special thanks to MAKO and particularly the emergency managers affiliate. Um, that is a real central point for them to come together and particularly work on these common uh, issues that we might have so that we can, you know, we can move forward together and make Maryland a much more resilient state. So it's, it's a teamwork. It's a partnership, and I'm very, very, very happy to be a part of all that. And the assistance that you all provide and support you provide to us is, is phenomenal. So thank you. All right. Thank you again. We will leave it there for today. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, please go ahead and subscribe. That way, all of these episodes will be sent directly to the device of your choice. You can also follow along on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and then, of course, the Conduit Street blog. But for Michael Sanderson and for Secretary Russell Strickland, this is Kevin Canale signing off, and we will talk to you soon. <laughs>